I guess I was in a hurry because I wanted to tell you all a dream that I had this week. And in this dream, this is really vivid. I mean, I, when I woke up, I, I said to myself over and over and over again, I want to remember this dream. And uh, in this dream, when uh, I was preaching to, to a, a church full of people, and I think it was probably the chapel, looked different, but it was about the chapel size, but it was, it was filled up and, and everybody was there. And I began preaching at six o'clock. And in my dream, I started preaching, but then my dream went blank. And then my dream came back. I mean, this is seconds, of course, but in the dream, it came back and it's midnight and I'm still preaching. And I've been preaching for six hours and everybody in the room is gone except for two people. I mean, you know, on this side over here was somebody sleeping. I cannot remember who it was. But on this side over here, it was Dickie. And he was still there. I said, Dickie, what happened? He said, you just been preaching for six hours. And he said, it was like you'd zone in and zone out. And people just began to leave. And I'm all that's left. And that was my dream. And, um, of course, I was embarrassed for preaching so long. I asked Ann, what does this dream mean? And she says, I think it means you preach too long. I said, I think it means I don't preach long enough. <laughs> but one thing we both agreed on, and that was that Dickie must really love me to sit there for six hours, right? <laughs> uh, after uh, listening relentlessly to a long and tedious sermon, a six-year-old boy asked his father what the preacher did the rest of the week. And the dad said, oh, he's a very busy man. He takes care of the church business, visits the sick, works on his sermon, counsels people. And, and then when he, ha he has to have time to rest because speaking in public isn't an easy job. And the boy thought for a moment, he said, well, listening ain't easy either. <laughs> you know, that little story made me think back to when I was a kid. And I can remember when the preacher was preaching, and it was definitely tedious sitting there. And I was always looking for those cues in conclusion. My last point, whatever it was. And I can remember as a, as a young boy, just, just, boy, how excited I was when those words would come out of the preacher's mouth, right? And I, and I thought to myself, I said, I wonder if young people are sitting there listening to you, Jimmy, and, and saying, oh, you know, listening for in conclusion or the last word, this is the last thing or whatever. And uh, I, I hope not. You know, s sleepiness and boredom is a reason not to, uh, people don't want to listen to preachers, but... There's another reason we don't like to listen to preachers either, and that is because they're saying things that we don't necessarily want to hear, and we don't like to listen because what they say really speaks to us, and, and we don't particularly want to hear it. Now, I think that uh, the book of uh, Malachi would have been such a, such a book or such a prophet to the Jews. Uh, by the way, I've been... I've been calling him Malachi all day, all week long, right? Malachi, I like that better. Actually, in Hebrew, his name is uh, Malachi. Malachi. Sounds more like Malachi. I've had two people say sounds like Malarkey to me. So, <laughs> so anyway, we'll stick with Malachi, but I really like the Malachi or the Malachi, all right? But uh, Malachi is the last of the minor prophets for us. I don't see any first-time guests, but if you happen to be and I've missed you, um, let me tell you, we've been preaching and talking, teaching through the minor prophets for a number of months now. 
And, and I remember when we began this journey, it was really kind of difficult for me because these guys were always pointing out sin and always talking about sin. And I definitely found that rather difficult uh, as we began. I've gotten a little bit more used to it, I guess. The, the, word, uh, the, word, the word Malachi means messenger of God. And traditionally, that's been viewed as the prophet's name. But that's the only place in the Bible that we find the word Malachi. And it could just as easily be the title of this work because it means messenger of Yahweh or messenger of God. And so this, this book itself could be the messenger of God. So Malachi may be a man's name. It may be the name of this work. We don't know for sure. This is the only place it's mentioned. It's obviously a post-exilic book. Again, if you've been with us, you'll know what that means. You'll remember that God judged the Israelites uh, and sent them on an exile for 70 years out of the land of Israel. At the end of that exile, he brought them back and, and reestablished them in the promised land and rebuilt the temple and set up things as they were before. And so that's called after the exile or post-exilic. And there were three minor prophets that spoke after the exile. You'll remember they were Haggai and they were Zechariah that we just finished last week. And, and then, of course, this one, Malachi, who is actually the last of the minor prophets and the last prophet, the last book in our first covenant collection of, of books. This is the very last book of all. It was written probably a hundred years after they have returned from Babylon. They've been back in the land probably about a century and, and just so we can get some kind of bearing on that, you know, a century ago would have been 1918. A century for us is 1918. You know, 1918 to me sounds like a, a long, long time ago, doesn't it? Do y'all, when we think of 1918, I mean, that was when they were doing those crazy dances and all, World War I, all that kind of stuff. That was a long time ago. They've been in the land a long time. The temple has been rebuilt and uh, they've had high hopes for Israel, and, and they believed that the Messiah was probably going to come and that God would fulfill all his promises to Israel, but that has not happened. As a matter of fact, the Jews who came back from Babylon and have repopulated Israel, they've turned out to be just as unfaithful to God as the ones that preceded them. They've become just as unfaithful to God as the ones that God exiled out of the land some 170 years earlier. They've been just as unfaithful as them. They've been unfaithful to God. And so poverty and injustice and selfishness and disregard for the will of God permeates Israel at this point. And so God brings forth Malachi with this message to confront the Jews with their unfaithfulness. And the book of Malachi is basically, depending on how we break it down, five or six indictments against the Israelites by God. God's going to say, you are doing this, and it's going to be a negative against them. And so I've written my notes in the negative. I, I have, I have um, I've written God's indictments. They're each one of my points. But this morning in prayer time, I... I I felt like I heard the Lord say, couch these in the positive, because at the end of each point, I want to challenge you with it. I want to challenge us with it, right? So if I were to flip that and say, not what we shouldn't be doing, but what should we be doing, okay, 
I think that's better. And that's what the Lord kind of put in my heart to do. So it's not in my notes, but I'm going to try to do that as I go through here. There's, there's six of them or, or seven of them, five of them, like I said, depending on how you break it down. We're, we're going to look at four this morning, and we'll finish Malachi next week, all right? But let's look at these four indictments, and I'm going to couch them in the positive. And so here's the positive. The positive would go like this. Brothers and sisters, let's appreciate with all our heart the love that God has for us. Now, God's indictment against them goes like this. I have loved you, but you don't appreciate it. Look at Malachi chapter 1, verse... We're going to read the whole book through this study in Malachi. So, not, of course, today, but between today and next Sunday. So, chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Again, that's the same way, by the way. That's, mine said uh, oracle. It, yours may say burden, the burden of the word of the Lord. Remember, that's exactly how Zechariah began his last two prophetic oracles in chapters 9 and chapter 12. So again, Malachi and Zechariah. Malachi is probably, you know, using Zechariah's words. The burden of the word of the Lord through to Israel, through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not, and this is God's response, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Verse 5, for your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. So God says to them, I've loved you. And the people say, really? We don't, we don't see how. How is it that you have loved us? And God's reply to them is, have I not loved Jacob and hated Esau? And that's an important statement. It's used elsewhere in the Bible. So there's two things I really want you to understand about the statement. The first one is this. God in this passage is not talking about the actual men, Esau or Jacob, but rather he's talking about the nations that both of these men represent. In Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, God tells Rebekah, the mother of these twins, Esau and, uh, and Jacob, uh, God tells her, and I quote, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people will be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Remember, Esau was the older, and Jacob was the younger. Esau never served Jacob. Never. All right? In fact, if there's anything that's the truth, it's that Jacob served Esau. You'll remember when Jacob came back from being in, uh, in Haran with his uncle Laban, bringing Rachel and, and Leah and all his family. You'll remember that he keeps sending gifts to Esau. He keeps saying, here's gifts, here's gifts. And when Esau actually gets to him, Jacob bows down before him and says, here I am, your servant. Right? So if anything... You know, as far as the two men are concerned, the younger serve the older at in some level, right? But this is not a really about Esau and Jacob. This is about the nations they represented. This is about the two people groups that would come from each one of them. And actually in verse 4, if you look at verse 4, Edom is, is, is refers to Edom as being the descendants of Esau. So when God says, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated, he's not really talking about the two men, but he's talking about the nations. The second thing that I want you to note is that God did not literally 
hate Esau. Okay, He did not literally hate him. This love-hate contrast that we find here, we find it in the New Testament as well, where God tells us to hate our parents and love him. Right? God is not literally telling us to hate our parents. Uh, this is, in reality, a Jewish idiom. And if you don't know what an idiom is, an idiom is where we have literal words that actually mean something else when put together. Now I'm going to give you an example of, a, of an American idiom. All right, Here's an American idiom. It's raining cats and dogs outside. Now none of us, none of us believe that it's really raining small furry mammals, right? None of us believe that. We all know what that means. It's just raining really, really hard. But we have to understand, we have to understand the idiom to understand what, what they're being said, what's being said. So literally what God is saying when he says that he hates Esau and loves Jacob, he's basically saying he's choosing Jacob over Esau. He's preferring Jacob over Esau. Let me give you some examples of this Jewish idiom. We find it in the Old Testament. Jacob, here's the quote, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And then God responds to that and says, and when God saw that Leah was hated, Leah wasn't hated. She was not loved as much as Rachel. In fact, it says that Jacob loved Rachel, right, and not Leah. Uh, but she wasn't hated. And when Jesus says you can't, you can't have two masters because you'll hate one and love the other, he doesn't necessarily mean that if you have two masters, you're going to hate one of them. He's basically saying you're going to have to choose one of them. You're going to have to prefer one of them. Some of you work two jobs. And, and this might be, not be a good illustration because as I just caught somebody's eye who works two jobs, I know they hate the one job, the second job that they do. But you can work two jobs and, and really not hate either one of them. But you'll have to prefer one over the other when both bosses want you to work at the same time. You have to choose one over the other. That's what the Lord Jesus is saying. And of course, it's very evident when he tells us to hate our parents. He's not telling us to hate our parents. He's telling us to love God, choose God more over our parents, choose him first. Now, God chose Jacob's family to be the family through whom he would bless the world. Started with Abraham, Isaac, and then he chose Jacob. He chose all of Jacob's family to bless the world, not Esau's family. He chose Jacob's family. And God points to this, and he says, they say, he says, I've loved you. And they say, well, we don't see it. How have you loved us? And he's saying, because I have chosen you. I've chosen you, not Esau. And then he points to the fact that Esau will be destroyed, that Esau lies desolate. Look at your text. Esau lies desolate. And he said, even when they try to rebuild it, it's not going to be rebuilt. I will tear it back down when they try to build it back. Now, if you're remembering, and I know you probably don't because, you know, I, I have a hard time remembering too. Remember the minor prophet Obadiah? His book was written to the Edomites. It was written to Esau's descendants saying, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to destroy you. You will not come back. God chose Jacob over Esau. Now here's how God has loved them. He has loved them because he has restored them. He has loved them because they're back in the land. He has loved them because he's brought the temple back. He's brought them. He, though he dispersed them for 70 years, now he's brought them back. They've rebuilt. God is saying, you want to know how I love you? Just look across the river at your cousins because I'm going to destroy them. I have not chosen them. I have chosen you, and I have restored you in the land. Don't miss the point. God says, I've loved you, but you don't appreciate it. You don't appreciate my choice of you. You don't appreciate what I've done for you. Now, 
Here's my application for us because I think this fits for us. I wonder how many of us have, and let me make it even more specific and more personal and more temporal, I wonder how many of us even today are spurning God's love for us. And God says to us, I have loved you. And you say, how have you loved me? I mean, show me, God, how have you loved me? Have you not seen my life? Have you not seen my suffering? Have you not seen what I'm going through? You say you love me. How do you love me? Here's what I think God would say to us. He would say, I have chosen you in Christ. I humbled myself. I entered into this world. I literally died so that you would not have to die the second death. I chose you in Christ. I gave you all the blessings of my son. That's how I've loved you. I chose you. And, and so and, and, and we would say, but, but, what? But how have you loved us? In other words, we overlook what God has done for us. I, I can't tell you how many times, listen to me. Listen to what I'm saying here because this may be you. I cannot tell you how many times I have heard believers say things like, God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. And here's what they mean. God hasn't done what I thought God should do for me. God hasn't met my expectations, and I've had to suffer. And the first thing out of our mouth is, well, God, you just don't love me. We don't appreciate what God's love has done for us. Have you ever said that? Have you ever thought that? Are you in a place right now in your life where you're actually thinking that? Well, if you are, Malachi is speaking to us. God is speaking to us through Malachi, and, and he's saying, I have loved you. Now, here, here's something I really want you to, to just think about for a second. God doesn't define himself as having love. God defines himself as being love, right? God is love. God doesn't have love. God is love. One of these defining attributes of God that, that he's willing to inculcate his whole self in is love. And so in the Bible, it says things like, for God so loved the world that he gave us his son. Psalm 86, 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. But God, verse 8, three verses later, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So follower of Jesus, here's the positive from Malachi for you and me. Let's not spurn the love of God. Let's not, let's not forget the love of God. Let's not equate the love of God with what he's not doing for us when he, we think it ought to be this. You know, I, it wasn't planned this way, but the video, the video this morning speaks to this very point, doesn't it? We, we have this idea that the love of God means it always turns out the way we want it to turn out. And, and, and so when it turns out the way we want it to turn out, we say God is, God is good, right? God is good because it turned out the way. What if it doesn't turn out the way I want it to, to turn out? Is God not good? Is God not loving? Yes, he's still all of those things. Be careful lest we spurn the love of God. Here's this God's second indictment against these Jews who have lived in the land for now over a century. And couching it in the positive, it would be something like this for us New Testament Christians. Hey, give God your very best. I'll come back to this, but, but, but write God in, in the top box in your life. I'll come back to that. 
Here's, here's, God, here's how God says it to them. I should be honored by you, and yet you belittle me with your leftovers. Let's read verse 6, chapter 1. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts? O priests who despise my name. So God says, look, if I'm a father and a master, shouldn't I get respect and honor? But you don't have that for me. Again, now they respond. But, uh, but you say, how have we despised your name? They, they say, we don't get it. We, you, you, how, how are we not respecting you? How are we not honoring you? And then God goes on to answer them in verse 7. You are presenting defiled food on my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord, nor will I accept any offering from you. For from, rise, from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 12, but you are profaning it. In that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring what is taken by robbery, what is lame or sick, or, so that you can bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hands, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who is, has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. Now here's what God says. That was pretty easy to follow, but just in case you didn't get it, here's what the Jews would do. They were, they were required to bring sacrifices for their sin, and they were, they were expected by God to bring their best. But it's, or, or at least not there, maybe not necessarily the best, but to bring an, un, an undamaged, a, a, a healthy lamb to be sacrificed, one that had any kind of problems or spots or anything like that was not to be offered. And here's what God says. You know, I deserve your very best, but what you guys do, you bring your very worst. You bring the blind, you bring, you bring the lame, you bring the sick sheep to be sacrificed for, for me. And he says, you would not even use these with your governor. You wouldn't give a, a lamb like this to your governor because he deserves more respect than this. So you wouldn't even do that for him. How can you do this for me? Furthermore, he says, you bring rotten food. You know, when it comes to grain offerings, you're bringing rotten food. Plus, you are saying, man, I just get tired of this. It is tiresome for us to bring you know, these sacrifices before the Lord. And God is saying, God is saying, you, you are disparaging me. You are depreciating me. 
At one point in this little thing that God says, and I love this, it's almost like a, like a little addendum in the middle there, a little, little parenthesis. In verse 11, he says, from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. I love that. God kind of points them down the road to a day when, when his name will be great in all the earth and everybody's going to worship him and everybody's going to love him. He's pointing, he's pointing to the new age, to the new heavens and the new earth. He says, one day all the nations of the earth are going to worship me. But as for you, as for you, what you guys do right now, I find this despicable. This is terrible what you're doing. You're bringing your leftovers, your worse, and I deserve so much more than that. Bob Buford, who wrote the book Success to Significance, tells about hiring this uh, strategic planner to help him in his life. And uh, he, he hires this guy not to help him double his cable TV empire, but to help him actually strategically plan out the second half of his life. So this strategic planner comes and sits down with Bob, and, and they talk for a couple of hours, and when they're finished talking, the strategic planner takes out a piece of paper and he draws a box at the top of the piece of paper. And he says to Bob, he said, you know, in the last two hours we've been talking and it's clear to me two things. Two things are really important to you. One of them is making money and the other is God. And he said, you know, as a strategic planner, I, I can, you know, I can help you make money. I can help you plan that. And, and if God is your top priority, you know, we can, we can come up with a strategy to honor that. He said, but you know something, Bob, you've got to figure out what goes in that box at the top of your sheet of paper. Now, I want to tell y'all, I think this is what God is saying to them and what God would say to you and me today. You know, we need to pull out a sheet of paper and at the top of that sheet of paper, draw a box and God is saying, you know what needs to be in that box? I need to be in that box. I, I need to be the top priority of your life. I, I need to be that which matters most to you. I need to be uh, the one whom, who, I need to be at the top. I need to be at the top. I, I thought about this because some people would say, what kind of God do you serve that just wants to be at the top of your sheet of paper, right? And so I asked myself this question, and this was last night. This was last night on, on, on my ride home, uh, late at night. Does God have the right to ask that of us? Does God have the right to ask you to, to put his name at the box, at the top of the sheet of paper that represents your life? Does he have a right to do that? That's a question you kind of got to ask yourself. Does he have a right, or is he just being a bully or whatever? Or is he just being some arrogant, arrogant God that, you know, somehow or another he's claiming rights over us? You know, here, here's what I think. Here's what I think. Not that that matters, but here's what I think. He's the creator. He's my creator. He's your creator. I think he has a right to ask me to put his name in that box at the top of my sheet of paper. I think he has the right by, by virtue of the fact that he's creator, but I also think he has the right by the fact that he 
as creator, was willing to lower himself and deprive himself and, and, and suffer himself so that I could know him and so that I could be changed and transformed. I think God has a right to the top box in my life because of who he is by nature, but also by who he is, by what he's, by, by what he's done, not just by who he is. And the fact that he was willing to suffer for me, to die for me, I think he's earned the right to have me put his name at the top of the box and to expect that and to expect for me to put his name in that box. I wonder how many of us are just giving to God leftovers. I mean, if we're honest, what's in the top of the box is something other than God. It's our career, maybe. Maybe, maybe it's our family. Maybe it's... Uh, you know, our, our personal prestige or our wealth, you know, or everybody like me. I mean, I don't, I don't know what's in the top box there. But I think what God was saying to them, you know, I should be in the top box, but you got something else in the top box of your life. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10 says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. There's just something in the Bible over and over and over again where God is saying, honor me with what's first. Honor me with what's most important to you. So I ask you in a way of application this morning, you know, who's, who's in the top box? What's in the top box? All right, let's move on. There's a corollary here in this one. It's, uh, it's a little bit different, but it's, it's, it flows from the same indictment that God has against them. I'm picking up in chapter 2 in, in verse 1, and this is directed, directed to the priest, okay? And he says, Now this commandment is for you, O priest. If you do not listen and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already, because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring. I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feast, and you will be taken away with it. And then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence, so he revered me and stood in awe of my name." True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. He turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you priests, you Levites, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in instruction. Now, again, hopefully you followed that. It's pretty simple and straightforward. He basically says to the priest, he says, you are not being who you're supposed to be as a Levitical priest. In fact, because of that, I'm, I'm going to remove your offspring if something doesn't change. In other words, I'm going to remove you from being priest. And then he makes this really gross statement. He said, I'm going to take the refuse. That would be the, the animal feces or the animal guts. And he says, and I'm going to spread them on your face. And notice that he says, the refuse of your feast. So when they would bring animals to sacrifice, they would, they would disembowel the animals, and that feces and guts and all of that would be placed over here. Here's what, listen, this is what God is saying. 
I'm going to take that and I'm going to spread it on your face. And I'm going to remove you from... I mean, this is a serious thing for this priest. What is the issue? Well, the issue is the priests are the ones that are not helping the people see that bringing sick and lame animals to sacrifice is such a dishonoring thing to God. And they are sacrificing their animals, those animals. They are not doing what God has told them to do. In fact, in the previous passage that I read you just a moment ago, God says, oh, that somebody would not light the fires under that altar. Oh, that somebody would stop doing this, but the Levitical priests are doing it, and he's saying, you guys are so corrupt. He says, when I gave the order to Levi, when I, when I set apart Levi, and it, by the way, guys, he's not really talking about Levi the man here. He's talking about Levi the, the, the man who's doing, the, the Levitical man who's doing what God wants him to do, not Levi per se, okay, because Levi wasn't all that great of a guy, all right? So he, he's really talking about the Levitical priest who really lives up to what God wanted of that man, and that is that there would be no unrighteousness found on his lips, that he would, he would walk in peace and uprightness before God, and that he would turn many back from iniquity, and that his lips would preserve knowledge, and that they would teach instruction, for he was to be the messenger of the Lord. So, so God is saying to them, that's the kind of Levitical priest that you're supposed to be. That's not anything like you're being. No. Now, the, the question, the question, oh, by the way, he says, and, and I have abased you before the people. The people see through your hypocrisy. I mean, they know it. They know you're being hypocrites. They're, they know what they're supposed to be doing, but you're, they see your hypocrisy. Now, the application here, now, the application for us today, and I guess I should have couched this in the positive um, but, but it works out better this way. Let me continue. You're probably thinking, Jimmy, this is not about me. I'm not a Levitical priest. This is about you. This is an application about somebody who's in professional pastoral ministry. This applies to you, not to me. And there's a sense in which you are right. You are right that the application of this, I think, falls more heavily on somebody like myself maybe than, than other folks. But it's not exclusively on me. Did you know that? It's not exclusively on me, and I'm going to tell you why. Because in Peter, 1 Peter, Peter says that you, you are a kingdom of, say it, you are a kingdom of priest, okay? And if that's the case, then, then you are like the Levitical priest in, in, God's, in God's second new covenant. You are a kingdom of priests. And so all these things that he expected of the Levitical priest to walk in uprightness, to, to be one who teaches uh, truth, one who pulls back many from iniquity, who speaks instruction from the Lord. That's all of our role. That's your role as a priest. And, and so here's, here's, I guess the positive implication was, let's be the kind of priest that God desires us to be that seeks to teach and lead and, and, and represent God to the people. Now, none of us are a priest in the sense that there was a, the, the Levitical priest were. You know, nobody, nobody needs a priest to go between them and God. They already have one, and no one will replace him. His name is Jesus. He's our high priest. He's the one that goes between us and God, and you are not going to be that. I'm not that. None of us are that, but we are a priest in the sense that we represent God to the people, and so I really want to challenge us to, uh, to, uh, to be priest. I'm going to stop there. Let's bow our heads. There's, uh, there's three things with your head bowed and your heart just tuned to the Lord. Let me ask you this morning, do, do you doubt 
God's love? Do you spurn his love? Have you somehow forgotten that God loves you and in the midst of what you may be going through, you've begun to doubt God's love? You've begun to just, in your heart, say things that, you know, just are, are spurning his love? If you, if you are, if that is you this morning, then let me urge you to, to turn back and love God. Rest in his love. Trust his love. He loves you. He loves you. He has not abandoned his love for you. And I don't care how hard it is. I don't care how hard it gets. God has not abandoned you. He's not left you. His love is there for you. His love is steadfast and faithful. Anybody here this morning doubting the love of God? Then turn back this morning. Here's the second reminder. And that is the, the sheet of paper. Who's, who's in that top box in your life? Because if it's not God, I think we're really prone to um, just giving God the leftovers rather than our very best. The best of our energies, the best of our time, the best of our day, the best of our thinking, the best of our resources, the best of our passions, the best of our life. We, we just, we, we kind of kick God to the sur- uh, curb, which is what they were doing and they were playing this, this game. They were going through religious motions, but they weren't honoring God in their lives. So how about you? I mean, this is, this is not trying to, no judgment in this, no shame in this. I'm not trying to shame us. I'm trying to get us to maybe repent, evaluate our life. And finally, do you see yourself as God's representative, as the one who is to teach men to know God, to lead men to love God and follow God, to turn men back from their sin? And when I say men, I mean men and women. You see yourself as God's representative in this day, in this place, in this county, in this this culture, in this time. You are God's representative emissary. You are God's priest. Do you see yourself that way? Oh, I invite you to see yourself that way, and I invite you to step up, to not do like these priests were doing and just compromising their role. God, thank you this morning that we have something different than uh, the, our, Jewish, our Jewish brothers and sisters even had back in those days. Lord, uh, we have your indwelling Holy Spirit who empowers us and brings conviction, who convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And even this morning, Holy Spirit, I ask you for all of us, Lord, without, without guilt and shame, Lord, but would you begin to change us? Would you begin to help us you get, be honest with ourselves and honest about what you're saying in, you know, in, this, in this book of Malachi even? Would you help us to be honest? Would you help us to evaluate our lives in light of what you said to them? God, help us. Help us, Holy Spirit, to change. Help us to be like Jesus, our Savior. Lord Jesus, I, I know I confess on behalf of all of us that we want to be like you. We want to follow you. We want to live faithfully like you did. We, we want to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength like you did. So help us, help us, Holy Spirit. Um, help us, Holy Spirit, to do that. We commit this to you. We commit this week ahead, Lord, by, by your grace. 
may, uh, may we be more like Jesus. And we pray in his precious and loving name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.